Well, we're studying through the book of Romans. Let's find our way back to Romans chapter eight, going verse by verse through this amazing letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Chapter eight, as we've been studying over and over, has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible by many, and it's certainly one of my favorite. And as we're studying it week by week, it's becoming more and more rich and dense with theological meaning and practical application. Today's text is uh, uh, really, really a precious part of um, pursuing the book of Romans. This is, this is the practical side. This is what happens when, um, when theology is turned into living faith living hope, living practical application. Romans chapter eight, we're gonna look at 12 and 13 today. Let me read that for you. Paul says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But by, if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Let me ask you a question. What is the strongest force in your mind? What's the strongest thought that a human can have? In other words, what is that something that will, you will do anything for? The answer is quite simple when you think about it. It's the desire or will to live. I clearly remember the first time I ever really felt this. I was eight years old at a swimming pool with my cousins who were several years older than me. They were uh, two uh, uh, men, that, uh, two young men at that time that I just adored. We were having fun. They were playing. We were doing what every kid does in a swimming pool, playing around, dunking each other under the water. Well, one of my older and no doubt bigger cousins uh, pushed me under and held me for a few seconds. That wasn't a problem. That's just, that's just what kids do. But I remember surfacing, and before I could get a next breath, my other cousin pushed me back under. I remember being held under there for what seemed like an eternity. My, uh, my lungs were burning with uh, desire to breathe, and I, I was panicking. I don't remember ever being panicked like that before or since. I, I really, as an eight-year-old, thought I was gonna die. And I, it's amazing how fast you can think. I was eight years old thinking, I wonder if this is gonna hurt. I wonder what's gonna happen. Uh, I wonder if they'll find me. I mean, it was like four feet deep. I think they probably would have. As a last-ditch effort, I um, twisted and bit the arm of my cousin as hard as I could. He let go, I surfaced. Before he could express disbelief or anger at what I had done, he realized that I had been in trouble, jumped out of the pool, and I breathed like I have never breathed before or since. I just remember thinking, I like oxygen, and I like breathing, I like living even better than oxygen. I found out that I have a pretty good will to live. Now, another time, I was on a pig hunt um, and was charged by a wounded boar. That's, that's another story. But I remember at that same moment, uh, having a flash in my mind, I really like living and don't want things to end today. 
It's to that desire, our will to live, that Paul appeals in this passage. If you have a desire to live, this is a passage for you, and I know you do. If you have a desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have a desire to be sanctified and to be holy, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Look at the very end of verse 13. You will live. There's some conditional statements that lead up to the fact that if you do these things, if you live this way, you will live. The alternative is if you don't, you will die. I wonder how much of us can relate to this compelling influence on a spiritual level. All of us avoid death. That's the natural part of being alive. But I wonder if we understand how that's supposed to be a compelling motivation even in our spiritual life. At the heart of this passage is the issue of sanctification. That's a big theological word that just means to be made holy, to be conformed into the image of Christ. There are three parts of salvation, justification, being made right with God, being made just before God, glorification, which means going to heaven and being glorified with God, and then sanctification, which happens in between, as is the pattern of our lives. Now, we've been looking at this passage uh, where up until chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is hardly mentioned, and in chapter 8, he is mentioned over 20, up to 20 times between his pronouns and uh, the descriptions were given of him. Go back to verse six, uh, just to get a running start into our passage. For the mindset on the flesh is death. This death and life theme is running all the way through here. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject, subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, he's speaking to his brothers, his Christian friends here at Rome, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but... If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, and we noted that the spirit of Christ, the spirit of of the Holy Spirit, and even God the Father makes his permanent abode with us. He just interchanges these terms. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see this theme of life and death, living and dying, being alive and being dead? One of the key central tenets of the Christian faith is that for a believer, the spirit of God dwells with or in those who believe. Permanent abiding presence. He comes and has his abode with us in a way that is different, fundamentally different from an unbeliever. God lives in, with, and by the one who believes the gospel. In verse 12, this is the launching point for the rest of the chapter where he's, he's been implicationally practical. In other words, you can imply what he meant, but in in verse 12, he gets to the heart of the imperative, the command. Here's what you do. Here's the response. Here's the undeniable consequence of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And to put it simple, it's, it's sanctification. It's becoming holy. 
So let's lay this out. We're going to look at this passage together in this way, outline it by looking at three fundamentals of a sanctified life. Notice I didn't say the three fundamentals. There are are more that we're going to find in the coming weeks. These are three fundamentals, basics of a sanctified life. He begins here in the first part of verse 12, a holy obligation. The first fundamental is we have a holy obligation. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, stop right there. So then is because the Spirit of God dwells in us, there's a consequence. So then, so what? He tells us so what? Because the Spirit of God dwells in the life of a believer. So then, brethren, we are under debt or obligation. We're debtors. When Paul uses the term brethren here, it's significant. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. And even though he's being piercing in his application, he still pauses to say, listen, brothers, listen, friends. We're in this together. I understand this is difficult. This is difficult to understand, process, and apply. But I still call you friends and brethren. So then, because of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, brethren, we are under obligation Ophelates, the ESV translates this debtors. And that's a a decent translation, but doesn't grab the full meaning of the metaphor here because debtors is the idea that you owe something. It's really the idea of being obliged to something. Literally one owing money or goods. Matthew 18, 24 talks about this word in that same light. Figuratively, the word is is meaning, means you have an obligation or a duty to someone specific. You are obliged to be something or do something. Now, this is what's really interesting about this verse. Notice that Paul leaves our obligation to God implied. He begins a thought here and doesn't finish it. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Then he gives us the antithesis, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But then he supposes if by the Spirit, there's the... The, the, the second half, what he's really talking about our obligation to, but he doesn't even say it like that. He says, if by the Spirit, and he gives the consequences of that. He really sets this up to talk about the antithesis, which we'll get to in a moment. We're ob- uh, obligated to God in a way that we used to be obligated to our old life and our flesh. We've already been told in the previous verses that we are indwelled by the Spirit of God. We have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. We will one day be resurrected by the Spirit of God. And that puts us under obligation to do what the end of verse 13 says. To put to death the misdeeds of the body and subsequently and consequently and at the same time to live according to the Spirit. Here's the question Paul's raising. If you have been saved by grace through faith, through the costly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we rightly understand the implications of the permanent abiding presence of God with us, how can we feel the slightest freedom or permission to indulge the sinful desires of our flesh? He says, if you are Delivered from sin, if you're obligated to God, how can we, why would we lean back into the desires 
of our unredeemed humanness, our unredeemed flesh. We have a holy obligation to be sanctified. Now, we're not going to say much about that because Paul leaves that thought and he comes back to it. He just says, listen, we're, we're all obligated, but you have to understand what the negation of that obligation is before you get into the positive pursuit of that obligation. We have a holy obligation to live a holy life, to be sanctified, to walk according to the Spirit, to please the Spirit who dwells within us, which leads to a second fundamental, which is where he spends the bulk of his time here, not only a holy obligation, but secondly, a holy repudiation or rejection, a holy repudiation. We are under obligation not to the flesh. Then he amplifies it, to live according to the flesh. And he goes further. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Again, this idea of living and dying, the desire to live more than the, the, the desire to die, that this is what he plays off of. It's the will to live, not only physically, but also spiritually. Notice in verse 13, he moves from the we to the you. He moves from third person to second person. We, brethren, and now he says you. If you, verse 13, are living according to the flesh. Look back at chapter eight, verse six. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He's spent a lot of time in chapter six and in chapter seven saying, we are no longer under obligation to the flesh, which is another way of saying when we were born, we were under obligation to the flesh. We were, we were debtors. Everyone who's been in any kind of debt understands the power of that obligation, Right? That you're constantly in a state of owing that and, and it, it can dominate your life. If, you, if you've ever spoken to someone, maybe you've been in a situation where debt consumes you, you know that it is a powerful, powerful force. We're born debtors to the flesh. We spend our whole life, whole life uh, up to the time of coming to Christ paying our fleshly desires. They demand life given to them. They demand temptation that's yielded to. And it says we're not under an obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We've already studied the flesh many times. It doesn't mean just human flesh. What he means is, is living life in this world, in between um, uh, being uh, uh, born and going to eternity. This flesh, this humanness. And even when someone is, is converted and comes to Christ, we still live in the flesh. The, the, this this these bones, the skin, the, the, the veins, the blood, that's not what makes me fleshly. It's the unredeemed humanness. It's the fact that when we get saved, God doesn't instantly make us perfect. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That's an echo again of verse six. The mindset on the flesh is death. What kind of death is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about death in two categories and in two dimensions. First, the, the wages of sin is death. Look back at chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look back two verses to verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. In other words, 
Pursuing lusts, pursuing desires, pursuing fleshly um, inclinations and leanings that, that are contrary to God and his word, those lead to death. Ultimately in a physical sense, but they also wither your soul. They bring you away from peace. Which is why chapter 5 verse, uh, verse 1, one of the first results of justification is we have peace with God. If you're living, it's a, it's, it's a verb that means you're constantly in the state of, according to the flesh, you must die. Now, we've already looked at all those ifs uh, in our last study of Romans. If Christ is in you, verse uh, 10, excuse me, verse 9, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't, does not belong to him, if Christ is in you. He's going back to that same if here in verse 13. If you are living, if we are living lives that are dominated by the pursuits of our fleshly desires, it's very simple. You must die. Now, we have to be careful here. Is he talking about perfection or is he talking about progression? The answer to that is answered in chapter 7, right? Paul said, look, this is the apostle Paul who said, I find the things that I want to do, I don't do. Sins of omission. In fact, I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do, which are sins of commission. Oh, wretched man that I am, who, who is personal? Who will deliver me from this body of, what is it? Death. Paul understood that, that wrestling match. Paul understood that fight. You and I do as well. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. One of the things that we need to constantly be doing with one another. If you uh, think back to John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Any branch that doesn't bear fruit, I cut off, it's dried up, it's thrown in the fire and burned up. I was at a youth camp one time, and I'll never forget this. And I think the, the brother who was speaking there was well-meaning. I think he was very well-intended. But he said something that stuck with me. Only after studying, years later, I realized that's probably not the best thing to say. I remember him saying, you know, one of the problems of Christians is we've, we've become fruit inspectors. We just go around inspecting each other's fruit to see if someone's bearing fruit, to see if they're a Christian or not. We shouldn't be doing that. Actually, that's exactly what we should be doing. is caring for one another's souls, recognizing and affirming and promoting and pursuing the fruit we see in each other's lives. And if there is none, Stopping and saying, hey, brother, sister, this is, we need to stop and ask, are you living according to the flesh? Because the end of that is death. True Christian love cares to correct, cares to confront. True Christian maturity receives that confrontation as love and care for one's soul. You know, I think one of the defining Marks of Christian maturity is receiving correction. But honestly, I think receiving correction is probably easier than providing it. If we love each other, we should be living in these verses. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Paul said that to his friends there in Rome, we ought to be asking each other that as well. And I don't think it should be that we come to church on Sunday and just say, hey, want to make sure you're a Christian, want to make sure you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? Want to make sure you're a Christian. It's probably not what the implication is here. But it does mean if we see patterns of living according to the flesh, we should love each other enough to do what Paul did here and say, look, you do know if that's the pursuit of your life, you must, what does the text say? Die. 
appealing to the will to live. So we're repudiating living according to fleshly, sinful desires. Not perfectly, but progressively. Just like Paul. Now, this third fundamental, I'm going to basically introduce this morning. And then we're going to... We're going to pick it up in two weeks after the Christmas break and Christmas sermon, rather. And I want to spend a whole aside, a a sermon that is going to entirely look at a process for mortification. Number three, a holy mortification. It's a morbid word, isn't it? It means to kill, a holy killing, a holy mortification. He says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if... You can supply the verb, if you are living by the Spirit, that's what he's been talking about since verse 6, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Now we find the antithesis. You will, what's the word? Live. You must die or you will live. He appeals to that, that basic desire to live, the will to live. If by the Spirit you are putting to death, there's the... The uh, phrase from which the Puritans coined that, that doctrine, the doctrine of mortification, the doctrine of killing. Killing what? It's very clear. The deeds of the body, the, the fleshly expressions. Thanatao is the Greek word. It means to deprive of life, to put to death, to slay. It was actually used of the chief priests wanting to put to death Jesus in Mark fourteen fifty five. Figuratively, though, it means to put to a stop, to exterminate, to cause to cease. Now think about that. To put to a stop, to exterminate, to cause to cease. You're putting to death, causing to cease. You're putting to death, stopping. You're putting to death, exterminating what? The deeds of the body. Now, the body here stands for the instrument through which the flesh operates. We have to be very careful here that we don't come what philosophers called Neoplatonists. Now, a Neoplatonist or the new uh, Platonist, the new, new application of Plato's philosophy. His philosophy was basically that the spirit is all good, what's inside you is good, but the flesh is what's evil. We have to be careful that we, we don't fall into that understanding that, you know, just being a, a human is, is, is evil and wicked, but the inside is really good. No, no, no. It's the, it's the desire that's inside where this fight is really waged. The body is just the, the means where, uh, or the, the end by which the means of our desires express themselves. This verse is the central passage that John Owen and all the Puritans used to describe, discuss, and explain and exhort the doctrine of mortification. I mean, it's an odd thing, isn't it, that Christians are in the process of killing part of themselves all the time. What did Owen say? Be putting sin to death or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You. This is not the only place that Paul discusses this. Now, again, we're just going to introduce it this morning. In our next study, I want to give you a practical layout for how to do this from the writings of, of Paul and Peter. This is not the only place Paul and Peter discuss this. Romans 6.13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Exact same idea. Don't offer your body as an instrument to do sinful things. Colossians 3.5, put to death... 
Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We're killing the deeds and the ideas that come to express themselves in our body as sin. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified, there's a killing word, crucified the sinful nature with its passions and lusts. You know, crucifixion was a gruesome, gruesome uh, way for someone to be executed. We talk about that with reference to Christ all the time. But the same extraordinary circumstances that were used to crucify a person, specifically our Lord, those are the extraordinary means by which we apply to ourselves to crucify passions and desires that are sinfully associated with our our flesh, our, our body even. Colossians 3, verse 3, for you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Listen to verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as, you know the word, dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. The same list we just saw in Galatians. Peter gets in on this as well, 1 Peter 4, 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I love the way Peter puts these in opposition. The will of God or the will of our sinful flesh. Perhaps, though, the most compelling summation of this idea of mortification, of going to extreme effort to kill the sinful desires in our hearts, and our flesh, was given by the Lord himself. It is, I must confess, one of the most head-tilting um, uh, passages in all of the Bible. You just look at it and kind of tilt your head and go, wow, this is, this, this is heavy. Matthew chapter five, verses 27 to 30. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus appeals to that, that uh, base notion of infidelity. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard it taught not only in the scripture, but you've been taught in your Judaistic uh, tradition. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And everybody says, that's right. Jesus says, but I say to you, really interesting, this is God, so he can say, but after any passage he wants. We can't say, but after a passage. Oh, I know God says that, but. He says, he wrote the Old Testament. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he goes even further than that. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As Jesus says that, you can just see all the people there who've all had lustful thoughts starting to, to wilt in their self-confidence. Before they can even get their bearings on what is he talking about, he goes to another example. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, 
Cut it off. Throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. He also told the same crowd, if you've hated your brother, that's the same as murder before the Lord. Now, I've talked about this before because it's just really mind-numbing at the illustration. He says, if, you're, if your right eye makes you sin. Now, this is not being literal. Unfortunately, uh, my wife and I know a, a gentleman in California who took this literally and he just wasn't thinking right and he actually shot himself in the eye as an application that, of this. This is not what this is talking about. And we, t- we can tell he's being metaphorical by what he says. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tell you what, pluck it out. Now folks, would that do it for that eye being useful? Can your eye be useful as a seeing instrument in your hand? No, it would be quite helpful if it could, right? You could look up over things to find things. That's not what he's talking about. He says, if your right eye sins, pluck it out. And then he says, do what? Throw it far from you. In other words, go to extreme measures. Obviously, if he's talking about the physical level, once you take your eye out, it's not useful. The second, if your, if your hand, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it far from you. I hope you're left-handed. Cut it off and then throw it far from you. If you cut your hand off, if your right hand is sitting in your left hand, wouldn't it be ineffective as a useful instrument? But he says, cut it off and throw it far from you. What he's saying is a metaphor. Do whatever it takes. Go to extreme measures of mortification to kill those things that you're doing that displease the Lord. I just read this passage and the, the conclusion is, is just startling. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He's speaking, again, metaphorically about what you will lose. He's saying, what's worth it? Jesus says the same lesson elsewhere in Matthew 16 with different language. He says, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Forfeit his soul. In other words, what is it worth in this life? What is really worth sacrificing eternity for? This is a heavy passage. I think the most exciting reason to apply mortification to our lives is in the next verse. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't really go on on this today, but it's adoption. We're sons of God. We'll get to that in a few weeks. It's, it's knowing that God is our Father, and we want to please our Father. We want to do what makes Him happy and brings a smile on His face. We're adopted sons of God, led by the Spirit of God. The motivation for this ought to be to live holy lives, but it's not, it's not just a task we're given. It's relational with the fact that the Spirit dwells in us and we have God the Father who we want to please, who's adopted us, and Christ is in us as well. You find the whole trinity in this, in this, in this passage working together with us and for us. Three fundamentals of a sanctified life. A holy obligation to please God. A holy repudiation to deny our fleshly desires and urges. And a holy mortification to be in the process of putting to death the deeds of the body. 
As I said, we're gonna study what that last phrase means. What does it mean to put to death the, the deeds of the bodies practically, uh, uh, implicationally? How can you walk out and say, okay, now I have a plan and a strategy for attacking my heart, my, my sinful desires, my sinful inclination, inclinations. We're gonna do a whole sermon next time just on this. It's just gonna be a little footnote. I'm gonna pull over and kind of study that. But for this morning, I wanna take the highest altitude and talk for a moment about mortification. I told you last time we would be listening to my favorite theologian on this issue, probably the one who's written more on the subject of mortification than anyone else in the history of the church. He was a Puritan uh, who studied and taught at Cambridge. His name's John Owen. Let me read you what Owen says. To mortify means to take away all the strength and vigor and the power of sin so it cannot act on its own or exert itself in the life of a believer. Now, this isn't Holy Scripture, but it's an application of Scripture. Let me read that again. Listen to what he's saying. To mortify means to take away all the strength, vigor, and power of sin so that it cannot act on its own or exert itself in the life of the believer. In other words, we are at war with principles that are operative in our own heart. He goes on, this entails not only the fruit of sin in external behavior patterns, but also the root of sin in internal motives and desires. I think one of the things that uh, we'll study next time is that, that, that prevents us from the true doctrine of, of mortifying our, our sin is that we just try to stop doing things externally rather than tracing the actions to the root of idolatry in the heart. Every sin is ultimately a sin of idolatry. And the idol of every sin is self. We've actually chosen to worship, to give service to our own sinful desires more than God. According to Dr. Owen, to mortify means to take away all the strength and vigor and power of sin. Taking it away, not feeding it. In his development of the concept of mortification, Owen explains first what, uh, uh, what, it is, what, it is, what it's not before he talks about what it is. He says, mortification does not mean to eliminate sin in this life, which is no longer a problem. Don't we wish that were possible? Now, I need to say this. There are certain uh, theological um, uh, pursuits, theological systems, rather, um, Wesleyanism, for example, that says if you work hard enough and if you try hard enough, you can get to the point where you are no longer sinful. You're ultimately completely sanctified in this life. Well, not only is that not possible biblically, have you ever met someone who's attained to that? Owen says the goal... Uh, though this is the goal of sanctification, to rid ourselves of sin, it cannot be reached this side of glory due to the presence of indwelling sin. Mortification does not mean achieving a degree of civility or conformity to outward morality, for such may seem to themselves and others very mortified men when perhaps their hearts are a standing sink of all abominations. He also says mortification is not the replacing of one sin for another, for all sin is worthy of death. Finally, uh, occasional victories over sin, he says, do not constitute mortification of the sin principle. Here's the problem. 
The second you've mortified a sin, when you go to bed, that thing has, it's resurrected itself in your heart. And if we feed it, it will come back. We are in a battle as believers the rest of our life, but we can get traction. We can have victories. We can increase the number of victories and the degree of victory. I'm stealing from next week, but let me, let me just go on a little bit more with Owen. He says, mortification involves the habitual weakening of sin and constant fighting against it with a measure of success. The battle needs to be perpetual because each manifestation of sin contains the seeds of, evil, of sin's evil domain and inclines to the same end. There is a necessary universal crucifying of the flesh by which sin is weakened. He constantly talks about weakening the sin in our flesh, not ultimately taking it away. My old friend and mentor, John MacArthur, says this. Mortification involves the cultivation of new habits of godliness combined with the elimination of old sinful habits from our behavior. I like what he's saying there. It's the addition of godly uh, disciplines and godly behaviors and godly habits as we're taking away habits of old sinful inclinations. He goes on. It is a constant warfare that takes place within the believer. Although we should expect our triumph over sin to be ever increasing, our mortification can never be wholly complete before we are glorified. We are to remain perpetually committed to this task. We must see sin as our sworn enemy and commit ourselves to slaying it wherever and whenever it rears its head, end quote. Now, as I said, next time we're going to talk about this biblical process of mortification. There are so many passages that feed into this. But can I give you at least, there's going to be a whole list of them, of of these uh, strategies. I want to give you number one to work on and think about in the next uh, two weeks before we come back to this passage. This this will be the the head of the, the list I'm going to give you, but number one is this. Identify the sin internally and externally. And the reason I wanted to give you the first on this list we're going to talk about next week is we're coming to our Lord's table tonight in communion. And probably the best thing we can do in preparation for the Lord's table is the identification of the sin from which we want to repent. Stephen Charnock says, All sin is found in a secret atheism. It's interesting. All sin is found in secret atheism. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart and an aim at the destruction of, being of, uh, of the being of God, not actually, but virtually. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory at the end of his actions, end quote. Charnock is right. It's a kind of atheism. Remember, we've talked about what A.W. Tozer says. In the moment of sin, every man is at least a practical atheist. We may say we believe in God, but in the moment of sin, we're acting as if he doesn't exist. The reason I wanted to give you that first one, uh, we're going to talk more confessing sin to God as personal events, improving your understanding of God, tracing the thinking of sin. There's a lot more, but this first one is important in preparation for the Lord's table tonight. The identification of sin 
I think the enemy of our soul, Satan, one of his chief strategies is to prevent us from seeing how sinful sin is. To keep us from identifying in our hearts those things which, for which Christ died. To minimize sin. To think of it as not a big deal or to compare it to, to someone else and say we're not nearly as bad as them. If we can do that, then we won't see ourselves in need of the cross. And we certainly won't apply ourselves to the effort of mortification. So this afternoon, in preparation for our Lord's table, just ask the Lord, sit in a moment of prayer and just ask the Lord, what are the sins that you want me to identify and repent of? When, when John tells us, confess your sins to the Lord, let me give you a, a, a 1040 tax um, analogy. That's itemization. Uh, no one can come to the government and say, I want to pay taxes on just some stuff, that I, some money I made this year. I want, I want a deduction for, for a bunch of things too. You have to itemize all that. Be very specific. That's exactly what John says. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive them, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. You say, how many sins? Watch this. As many as you can identify. In action and in attitude. In heart and in deed. You know, we ask God for a lot of things. Um, but he typically will answer the prayer for show us our sin before he will give us that new car. So I want to challenge you. Will, will you spend time before the Lord's table tonight, hopefully daily, Asking God, would you show me the sins that I should have seen and even the sins that I committed out of ignorance that I don't even remember? Also, on the external level, the people who know you and love you most, that's a good question to ask too. It's one thing to correct and to be corrected. It's another thing to ask for correction. You wanna grow in your godliness? Sit down with the people who know you and love you best and say, what do you see? What do I need to mortify? Specifically, is there a pattern in my life of a certain sin, a certain attitude that needs addressing that you just don't see that I'm getting traction on or growth, toward, growth out of? I want to challenge you. Ask that. Here's the best news about the gospel. You cannot sin greater than the grace of God. Can't outstand God's grace. To understand and identify sin internally and externally is to see a gracious Savior. It's not to be condemned, it's to be forgiven. To understand the cross and the implications of the cross is to understand the lasting effects of God's presence that He promised us. Remember the upper room? I won't leave you as orphans, I'll send the helper. My Father and I will make our abode with you. If the presence of God is residual and resident in our lives, it is impossible for sin and God to coexist with a long-term, lasting relationship where they just occupy different parts of our lives. Jesus Christ is not to be a part of our lives, but the point of our lives. And when he is, we cannot help but battle sin. 
Would you bow with me in prayer? Our prayer room will be open in just a moment. And uh, to my right, if you have questions, please don't leave the room without, without seeking answers to those questions. And specifically in, as an application this afternoon, those of us who know Christ who are going to come back and celebrate the Lord's table, this is a holy moment in the life of the body of Christ here at Mission Road. Let's find sin to confess before the Lord. Let's find relationships to to, to mend and to make right before we come back and celebrate his death for sin tonight. It could be that this is kind of foreign to you, that you just don't understand it. We would love to explain to you what it means to give your life to the, the one we're singing about and talking about in this Christmas season, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to have a living, vital relationship with God in the flesh. Father, give us Understanding into our own hearts, reveal to us the depth and the breadth of our sin so that we can see the glorious depth and breadth of your forgiveness and the grace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, open our hearts to be worshipers of you today and give us the ability, the power, and the will to slay and kill and mortify the sin that wants to control us. We pray this because we have the Spirit of God, Christ in us, the abode of the Father, the permanent abiding presence of you, Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.